Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace. How are we doing this morning? It's good to be here with you. Um, happy anniversary Sunday as well to all who call Ritman Grace Brother Church home. Uh, my name's Clark, and I'm the pastor. If we've never met, I always like to say, feel free to stick around, and I uh, would love to meet you after service. Um, love to catch up with you as well, those of you that I uh, have met and known for some time now. We're going to be continuing in our current sermon series in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, last week, we looked at the line that says, Give us this day our daily bread. And if you were not here last week, or if you're just now jumping in, locking in with us, whether here in person or online, uh, you can go to our website at rittmangrace.org and access all the past week messages for this sermon series. But today we come to that line of the Lord's Prayer that famously reads, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I imagine that it's not a huge surprise uh, for anyone to come to church and to hear that that is going to be the topic of uh, forgiveness. Uh, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or uh, whether you're not, my guess is you probably know that the gospel message has a lot to do with this idea of forgiveness. So it's not that surprising to come here and, and learn that that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but here's the thing. I'm not sure that very many of us understand uh, what forgiveness is and how forgiveness actually works. I think we have some understanding of forgiveness, but I wonder if we've thought very deeply about what it actually is and what it actually invites us into. So that's what I want to discover with you today. Uh, the problem is that when we don't understand forgiveness deeply and when we don't understand forgiveness theologically, what we settle for is actually a very shallow and a very surfacey uh, forgiveness. And, and that sort of gets us halfway down the road uh, in terms of experiencing the freedom from bitterness and resentment and anger, but not far enough to really live in the freedom that Jesus intends for us to, to live in. So my hope and prayer for today is that we would each walk out of here this morning with a better and fuller and a richer understanding of what forgiveness is and how forgiveness works. So when we pray, forgive us our debt, as we forgive our debtors, or as some versions might say, you might have a Bible that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we pray that, what we're acknowledging is two realities. Uh, number one, we're acknowledging that we need to be forgiven, but then secondly, we're acknowledging that we need to forgive others. And what I want to show you this morning is that those two things are inextricably linked together. Unless we've experienced God's forgiveness of us, we'll find it impossible to forgive others. And likewise, if we have been forgiven and we know the richness of how God has forgiven us in Christ, there's no way that we can withhold forgiveness from others. Here's another way of saying it. Uh, vertical forgiveness makes possible the horizontal forgiveness. Horizontal forgiveness is an overflow of the vertical 
forgiveness. To say it even more simply, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. So this morning I want to look at two dimensions of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive others? The horizontal work of forgiveness. And what does it mean to be forgiven by God? The vertical type of forgiveness. So let's begin with the second half of this prayer, uh, which says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's look at the second part first, the horizontal. What are we actually doing when we forgive someone? What's happening when we do that? Why do we find it difficult? Why do we find it challenging to offer forgiveness to those who have wronged us? In any act of forgiveness, there's two things that we're doing. Number one, forgiveness is naming an act as a wrong and condemning it. If you, if you stop and really think about it, if you say to someone, I forgive you, what that implies is that what you did was wrong and it needs to be forgiven. So in the act of forgiveness itself, we're calling something wrong and we're calling it unjust and we're naming it as such. But then secondly, forgiveness is releasing the offender from the debt of that wrongdoing. We're choosing not to hold against them the moral debt of their wrong against us. In other words, we're canceling the debt that they owe. This is why the Lord's Prayer uses that debt sort of language. Because when I wrong you, I incur a moral debt towards you, and I make you bear some degree of emotional pain. You're hurt or you're offended by my wrongdoing. So in forgiveness, I'm canceling the debt, and I'm bearing the emotional pain that your wrong has created. So forgiveness involves a justice component, naming that something is wrong, but it also involves a mercy component, extending undeserved debt cancellation. So forgiveness is relatively easy when you're forgiving minor offenses, or when the people that we're forgiving are people that we really like. When it's people that we really like and have deep relations with, when they slight us in minor ways that aren't that offensive, it's no big deal to forgive in those situations, right? When we find it easy to forgive uh, in those situations, by way of contrast, where forgiveness gets real, where it gets real is when we're asked to forgive those who have wronged us in deeply hurtful ways, when we have to do the hard work of forgiveness, when we have to forgive those who have hurt us in deep and hurtful ways, people who haven't even asked for forgiveness, people who aren't even sorry. Aren't we really just letting people off the hook when we do that? When we say, I forgive you, aren't we really just saying, hey, it's no big deal. No big deal. No more payment required. Is that what we're doing? Well, not exactly. Rather, what we're doing in forgiveness is we're entrusting justice to God. We're entrusting justice to God. When I say I forgive you, I'm not saying, hey, no big deal, that didn't cost me anything. It did hurt, right? We're not saying it didn't hurt in any way, it wasn't a big deal. What we're saying is, no, actually, it was a big deal. It was wrong, and I'm entrusting justice to God. I'm referring the matter to a higher court and forgiveness. I'm forgoing vengeance against you and entrusting justice to the Lord. Because as God reminds us in Romans chapter 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if we've seen a better example of this combination of justice and mercy and what that looks like than a statement that we saw in a Michigan courtroom in January of 2018. You might remember this story. Uh, Rachel Den Hollander, a committed, convictional Christian, confronted Dr. Larry Nasser, who was charged and convicted with multiple counts of sexual assault. She's one of the victims who gave a victim statement in the courtroom. And I want to share with you the portion of what she said. I think it really ties into what we're talking about this morning in regards to forgiveness and this idea of justice and mercy. She says this, You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible that you carry, then you know that forgiveness does not come by doing good things as if good deeds can wipe out the incredible evil you have committed. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all its utter depravity and horror. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and all of its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And she continues and said, Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the weight of guilt in the face of the horrific evil you committed will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it gives hope and grace where none should be found. And I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt someday so that it can be followed by true repentance and forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Can you see the strength of that statement? The strong call to justice? The referring of things to God's final day of justice. Christianity Today asked her about a week later, what does it mean that you forgive Larry Nasser? And she answered this way. She said, it means that I trust in God's justice and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to meet that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. So you see, forgiveness is fierce. It's not saying, hey, no big deal. It's not a shallow, everything's fine. Rather, it's a courageous and a faith-filled decision to trust the justice of God and to release anger and bitterness and personal vengeance. This is why horizontal forgiveness is impossible without vertical forgiveness. Because if you take God out of the equation, who are you going to release justice to? How can you forgive the injustice done to you if there's no final and ultimate justice in the universe? Horizontal forgiveness is impossible unless there's such thing as vertical forgiveness and divine justice. So having considered the horizontal forgiveness, uh, dimension of forgiveness, let's turn our attention now to the, the vertical dimension. What does it mean to pray that first part, forgive us our debts? I think our biggest challenge, the biggest challenge that we have with the vertical dimension of forgiveness is believing that we need it. It's believing that we actually need it. 
We live in a culture that tells us, deep down at our core, we are uncompromisingly good. That's what our culture tells us. We live in a culture that says, you know, we might not always live up to our ideals. We may fall short of our potential, but deep down, we're fundamentally good. And because we're good, therefore, we have a right to be affirmed no matter what. That's what our culture tells us. We should never be rebuked. We should never be condemned. We should never be called to account. Rather, what you're allowed to do is to affirm me. And that's all. And so, so with that type of anthropology, with that kind of view of human nature, it leads to a corresponding view of God, a theology of God that looks a lot like this. God is a divine Santa Claus. God's job is to give us good gifts and to tell us positive things about ourselves. Sure, there's some people in the world who are on God's naughty list, people like Hitler, people like Larry Nasser, maybe the 9-11 terrorists, but those people are in a different category from us. We're the good people. And God, after all, is like an indulgent grandparent who loves us and knows that deep down we're really good and he just wants us to be happy. Now, if our view of self is that we are basically fundamentally good people and our view of God is that he is like a divine Santa Claus, and then we will see, if, if that's the case, we're, we'll see no deep need for forgiveness. Why do we need to be forgiven at all if, if that's how we think about it? We're not committing atrocities. We're just out here doing the best that we can. We might slip up every once in a while, but, but God knows. He understands. But in order for us to see our need for forgiveness, the myths about ourselves, the myths about God, need to be both dismantled and destroyed. One of the reasons that God gives us the Bible is to give us clarity. God gives us his word to give us clarity about the real truth about ourselves. The book of James says that when we look into the Bible, it's like looking in a mirror. And the truth about God's nature and the truth about God's character is revealed in the Bible. So thankfully, even before we turn to the pages of Scripture, though, there's actually two common grace realities that God has given to us in the world that he's made. In these realities, they start to correct our vision and refine our understanding of who we are and who God actually is. And those two realities are our parenting and war. So think about parenting for a second. No one who has ever raised a toddler can possibly persist in the delusion that human beings are basically good. Amen? In only a matter of months, all of that newborn innocence starts to melt away. And we're experiencing this. We're continuing to experience this. There comes a point, usually between 9 months and 12 months, where you look at them in the eye and you say, no, no, don't touch that. And I, let me just say, I have seen the defiance that spreads across his little face. I've seen the little calculation in his little mind and have watched him proceed to look at me and do the very thing that I just told him not to do. And here's the thing, no one taught him to do that. No one taught him how to do that. It's just like a switch that turns on. And they become the very reality of who they really are. 
This is the universal human experience, right? But here's what I can tell you. There's no teacher at your kid's school who has the job of teaching the kids of how to misbehave, right? There's no person at the kid's daycare that's like, hey, your job is to teach the kids how to be evil, <laughs> right? Rather, we spend all kinds of time and all kinds of money and all kinds of energy with ourselves and others trying to teach kids how to obey, right? The bent toward rebellion and self-will is present in every single human being right from birth. Listen, it's, if you're serving in the twos and threes room, <laughs> probably that's probably one of the most theologically shaping things that you could possibly do. Because it's going to refine your understanding of human nature. Right? Especially here, because my son's in that class. When David says in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That accords with reality. That's just true, isn't it? The other common grace reality that connects our faulty thinking about God and ourselves is war. In the prosperous comfort of suburbia, it's easy to persist in the delusion that God is just like a divine Santa Claus who should just give us all a break. But war has a way of confronting our shallow notions about God. Just hanging out with toddlers confronts us with the real truths about human nature. Dealing with the evil that we see in situations of war causes us to deal with our shallow understanding of God. One of the most thoughtful thinkers and writers on this topic is this uh, Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, which is a really fun name to say. It really rolls off the tongue. By the way, if you, if you know somebody that's looking for a good baby name, I don't know too many Miroslavs, right? So food for thought. Miroslav teaches at Yale Divinity School. He's one of the most insightful writers on the issues of justice in the world. But here's some, some really unique insight that he gives here. He says this, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was actually, or excuse me, was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shall day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You see, a God who loves humanity cannot possibly look on without justice at the injustices that take place in the world. War reveals that there's a depth and a power to human evil that demands a belief in divine justice. And the thing about divine justice is that it's unbiased. It's impartial. I can't ask God to judge the evil in others unless I'm willing for him to judge the evil that's in me as well. One Russian novelist put it this way, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Because every one of us is a mixture of beauty and brokenness. 
Every one of us bears the image of God and we're capable of great beauty and goodness. And every one of us at the exact same time is fallen into sin and capable of evil. Every one of us has sinned, the Bible says. Every one of us needs to be forgiven. So how does God's forgiveness actually work? What does it mean for God to forgive us? Well, remember what we said earlier about forgiveness. God must, what He must do to forgive us is somehow to condemn our sin, but also to release us from that sin. He has to call our, call our, our sin evil. He has to call it wrong. He has to name it. He has to condemn it. But somehow let us go free. He has to separate us from our sin. And this is exactly what God has done for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, where we're going to spend a few minutes together this morning. I just want to read to you from this crucial letter in the Bible, this very dense summary of what God has done for us in Jesus. Here's what this text tells us, starting in verse 23. The Apostle Paul, he says, for, what's the word? Say it with me. All. Really important word. You can underline that or circle that in your Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, there it is again, are justified. Justified, that just means declared not guilty. Freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So here's what we've learned so far. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And yet we can be justified as a gift by God's grace. We can be counted not guilty. So though we have sinned, the Bible says we can be counted as though we have not sinned. And this all comes to us as a gift of grace. So how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us, notice what he says in verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Or to say it another way, God's justice. So what does it mean for God to be just? Well, it means that he has to tell the truth about who we really are. And not only that, he has to tell the truth about what we've really done. He can't just pass over that sin like it's no big deal. He can't pretend as though we haven't done anything wrong. Notice what he says next. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So here's the point that Paul's making here. The cross of Jesus Christ, by putting forth the Lord Jesus in your place for your sins so that you can be forgiven, God shows himself to be just. He will not look overlook sin. He will name it, he will call it what it is, and he will condemn it. And yet, he will also justify those who have faith in Christ. And he will count you as not guilty. And he will tell you that you are truly forgiven and off the hook for your sin. How can God do both of those things? He does it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he does that. So here's the question for you this morning. Have you received this gift of God's grace? Have you actually personally received this gift of God's grace? 
Have you come to the recognition that you're a sinner and that you've sinned against a holy God? That you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven? This is the core question that the gospel puts before us. Have I personally acknowledged that I have sinned against the holy God, that I have been forgiven, and that God has put forth the Lord Jesus Christ? And if I will trust Him and receive that gift that God offers in Him, I too can be set free and forgiven. That's the question for us today. Have you received this free gift of forgiveness? But it gets even better. You go, how can it get better than that? It gets even better as we think about the divine forgiveness and how it actually operates. Jesus is not just some third party that's inserted in between us and God, which sometimes how you hear the gospel being proclaimed. God is upset because we're sinning, and so we need this third party to come in and to get inserted here, and his name is Jesus. Rather, Jesus is the one in whom God bears the punishment for our sin. In Christ, God himself bears the burdens for our offenses. This is the miracle of the cross. The miracle of the cross is that God himself is taking our place, and in doing so, separating us from our sin. Jesus is fully God, the Bible says. And so he stands in our place as one with all the infinite and divine power to pay infinite penalty that all of us deserve for our sins. And yet Jesus is also fully human. He's fully God, but he's fully human. Stay with me. And so therefore he's capable of standing in for us because he is one of us. Forgiveness, don't miss this, forgiveness is not just some moral transaction it's also a personal union. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. And just think about what this verse says for a minute. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Now, the one that has died for all is clearly talking about Jesus standing in for his people, being the substitute for those of us who have sinned. So that's what the one died for all is talking about. But then it says, therefore, because that happened, because Jesus took our place, therefore we would expect it to say, therefore none of them needed to die. But that's not what it says. What does it say? Therefore all died. When Jesus died, all of us who belong to Jesus, the Bible says, also died. We were included in his death. We died with him and in him. And this is the beauty of the union with Christ. We see this in baptism as well. In Jesus Christ, we died, and in Jesus Christ, we've been raised to new kind of life. It's not only that Jesus died for us, it's also that we died with him. There's truly been a death that has taken place for all those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we also should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So did you catch all that language of being in Christ and being with Christ? 
This is the good news of having our union with Christ as followers of Jesus. So how does God forgive you? He forgives you by putting forth His Son, Jesus, as an offering for sin, by uniting you with Jesus so that you die in and with Christ. And when you do, your sin is called what it is. It's evil, it's condemned, it's nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, but you're set free from it because the justice that you deserve fell on Christ and on you in Christ. Because it really all, 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 it just boils down to this fact that forgiven people forgive people. When we come to the grips that what it means that Jesus has taken our place and that God has forgiven our sins in and through Jesus, now we come alive with a new recognition of what this good news is. And we move towards others with that same kind of forgiveness. And to the extent that we don't see God's forgiveness of us, and that that is good news, to that extent we'll find ourselves unable to move towards others with that same kind of forgiveness. Okay, so let's think about Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Remember, Jesus is not teaching us the doctrine of atonement and forgiveness. He's saying, hey, when you pray, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So Jesus is teaching us to pray a repeated, ongoing way of praying. And, and it's, it's tempting to think to ourselves, why, if God has forgiven our sin in Jesus, does Jesus want us to pray daily, forgive us our debts as we for have forgiven our debtors? Because, listen, forgiveness is relational, not just transactional. Yes, God has forgiven our sin in Jesus, and yes, every day we come to face-to-face with our sin, with our failure, with our lack, with our need for a fresh experience of God's forgiveness. And so fellowship with our Father in heaven means this. It's praying, God, I need to be forgiven today. I've sinned against you. I need you to forgive me. And, Lord, help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. And it's in forgiving those who have wronged us when we come to experience the power of the gospel in our own lives. Have you found that to be true? Forgiveness is one of the ways that the grace of God gets down into the fabric of our souls. And here's what I've noticed. It's very possible for Christians to have an amazing doctrine of justification and to have this great theological category for God having forgiven their sins in Christ and yet to be unforgiving people. But it's possible to do the hard work of confronting what it means to forgive other people and not be pulled more deeply into God's forgiveness of us. It's when we have to deal with forgiving others that we confront our need for forgiveness and our need for God's grace. It's easy to forgive people, like I said, it's easy to forgive people that you really like and that haven't hurt you that badly, but the deepest gospel transformation that we can experience comes from when we have to forgive people who haven't even asked for our forgiveness. Individuals who have sinned against us in certain ways, but aren't sorry about it, who don't come to you asking for forgiveness, who don't feel any remorse, and God calls us to forgive them. Jesus says, forgive us our debt as we have forgiven our debtors. So let me ask you, are you confronting the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the anger and the frustration and, and the judgment that is present in your heart? Because if so, you'll feel a fresh need for the grace of God to help you overcome those things. 
Because at the end of the day, forgiveness is not about the other person. Because again, you're just entrusting justice to God. That person is going to have to deal with the Lord for whatever they've done against you. And forgiveness doesn't let them off the hook before God. Forgiveness is merely a release of the demand that you're making on that person for justice or payment. If you don't forgive, here's what happens. Your soul will become consumed with bitterness and resentment and anger and hurt and frustration. And when your soul is consumed with all those things, it's impossible for you to experience joy. What God wants for you is to live in and experience the joy of the gospel. And in order to do that, you must move towards forgiveness. You must be willing to entrust to the God of justice the the debt of the sins of others towards you. It's in forgiving that we come to experience the gospel's deep and transforming power in our lives. Jesus wants his people to pray this way daily and regularly, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He wants us to do that because he wants his church to be a community of radical forgiveness. He wants what Jesus wants is that his people would experience or that people would experience among the people of God a radical sense of forgiveness rather than bitterness, rather than resentment, rather than hostility and grudge holding and anger and resentment that they would experience love and joy and peace and patience, keeping no record of wrong. Forgiving others as God has forgiven us. So when that happens, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's weird. It, it doesn't make sense to people. And God calls us to that. Why would you forgive people rather than hold a grudge against them? Only if you have experienced the forgiveness of God and Jesus Christ. So Jesus wants his people to be a community of radical forgiveness. A community with a deep apprehension of God's forgiveness of us so that we can move toward others in radical forgiveness. Now here's the beauty of being taught to pray like this. Jesus is teaching us this prayer. He's not just unfolding a doctrine of forgiveness, but what he's saying is pray this way. That means this. It means he knows that there's some people in your life that are coming to mind right now that you have no desire to forgive, nor do you feel like you ever could. He knows that forgiveness is not easy. It's not just like, well, God has forgiven you, so forgive that person. But rather, Jesus knows that forgiveness is really deep work. He knows that forgiveness oftentimes requires days, months, years of praying this prayer and entering deeply enough into God's forgiveness of us that we feel capable of moving toward and forgiving those who have wronged us. So this isn't just a switch that we can flip. Rather, this is an invitation into a demeanor and a disposition of forgiveness. And Jesus' intent is that the more debt that we see that we owe to God, the more we come in touch with our sin that has been canceled in the death and resurrection of Christ, the more that that happens, the more we will find God's grace and capacity empowering us to forgive those who have wronged us and to entrust ultimate justice to the God who sees all, who knows all, and will bring every deed to account. Because the bottom line is this, forgiven people forgive people. Not in a simplistic way, but in a deep and gospel-transforming way.
So let's pray together and ask God to help us be those kind of people. Well, Lord, we just come to you today, and we know that this is a, a topic that's met with a mixed, mixed emotions, for, for, for regardless of, of who's here this morning or who's watching online. And yet, it's a topic that shows up so much in your word that we can't ignore it. Uh, we can't just pretend like that part of the Lord's Prayer is not there. And so, God, as we think about this prayer, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Lord, help us to press our minds down on the reality of this horizontal forgiveness that we are called to in our relationships, but also in the vertical forgiveness, the forgiveness that you've given us through your Son, Jesus. As Jesus was even on the cross, I think about how the Bible tells us that he said, Lord, uh, forgive them. <laughs> While he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Lord, help that to, uh, to just motivate us in, in a way that would compel us to, to live a life of radical forgiveness. Lord, help that gospel to, to just internalize us in such a way that that would overflow into our day-to-day uh, relationships, God. Not just in the moments where it's easy, but in the moments where it's incredibly difficult, uh, whether that takes us uh, days or weeks or months or years. Lord, help us not to ignore uh, this life that you call us to as your followers, Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to think about these things and to act on them. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.